How many of you have used an undo button on a word processing program like Word, uh, Microsoft Word? I use Microsoft Word every week and, and this is my favorite button. It is number one on my quick access toolbar, not the regular toolbar. I have a quick access toolbar. The very first thing is undo because sometimes I'll type something and I'll go, that's just terrible, undo. Uh, every week, my sermons are about 3,000 to 3,500 words. I know because it tells me at the end of the, the, the uh, transcript. And so every week when I finish my sermon, I, I edit it down and then I, I take the slides, I put them up here so that Travis, whoever's running the computer can put the slides up during the message. And then I email it to Keith because he puts it online for our Facebook live. So we do all of that. Well, one day I forgot to save my 3,500 word transcript, which takes a while to do. And, and I, I just had this sinking feeling in my heart, at my stomach. I almost threw up because I was like, oh no, I got to start over. By the grace of God, I had not, I I had not um, saved my edited slides. So I normally every week, whatever the date is, I put slides and I save it there. I hadn't done that. And so I had taken my 3,500 words down for the slides. It goes down to about 300 words that you see on the screen each week. Well, by the grace of God, I hadn't saved the 300 words. And so I undoed, I undid, it's an undo button. I undoed about 3,000 words worth of edits and I was praising the God of heaven that I didn't have to retype my sermon. Now I tell you this because all of us are familiar with an undo button and some of us need an undo button before we post something on Facebook or before we send a text, but that's a sermon for another day. We'll talk about that later. Now, if Jesus was editing your life, the question that I want to know is what would he undo from your life? Because everybody here has something we would undo, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what would Jesus undo from your life? Uh, there are some things in our lives that, that break God's heart. There are some things in our lives like sin that, that make God angry. God gets angry at sin. And there are some things in our lives that make God sick to his stomach. And today we're going to talk about one that Jesus said makes him sick to his stomach. And to help you understand it, think of it this way. Have you ever, have you ever bought a gift for somebody and you were excited about giving that gift to them and you, you, you couldn't wait to give the gift to them and then they open it and they just kind of go, oh, that's nice. And they don't really seem to care. How'd that make you feel? Anyone ever do that? Or worse than this, what if you, you know, Rachel always listens to what Janie wants, so I'll call Rachel. Hey, what am I supposed to get mom this time? She's a good listener. But what if you studied whoever it was, you love this person and you've been listening and you get something you know they want. You spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money, and you, you wrap up the gift and you give it to them and they go, thanks, and they just set it aside. How would that make you feel? How would that make you feel? How would that make you? I'm trying to get someone to talk to me besides Tammy. She's on the front row. Thank you, Tammy. Appreciate you. Betty's helping out. It would make you feel bad, okay? Well, think about this. I want you to think about how Jesus feels because I want to read you a description. By the way, everybody thinks that this is my mama's Bible, so I ain't changing. I'm not fluffy or sweet. Here's what, here's what it says in, in Philippians about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, he was equal with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Being in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
I was thinking about what Jesus did for us, the gifts that he gives us. And here's, here's just a list. Let's run through this. Jesus was tortured for you so that you can be adopted into God's family. Jesus shed his blood for you so that you could be adopted into his family. Jesus died for your sins. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He kicked the devil's tail. That's my translation of what happened when Jesus was in the tomb for three days and he you know, goes down and fights. He kicked the devil's tail, right? Anyone? All right. He rose from the dead. Next. Gave us his living word. This, this Bible is his word. He was the word. He is the word. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Next. He gave us access to the very throne of God through prayer. So Jesus is God's son. If you're adopted into God's family through Jesus, the Bible says come boldly into the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Gave us uh, access to the throne of God through prayer. Gave us a job to do, which is expand his kingdom. The greatest job in all of history. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gave us a job to do, expand his kingdom. Not a kingdom that lasts here. Not America. Not Rome. Not a kingdom that lasts forever. Greatest, greatest kingdom ever. He gave us the same power that raised Christ from the dead. I pray that all the time. I say that people will understand what it means um, to tap into that power that raised Christ from the dead. That's a power that, that can face any problem that you have. Now, <clears throat> I want you to say this out loud, and I want you to outdo the first service. They did a pretty good job. I want you to think about the list I just put up there, and you're going to say, that's a great list. Now, let me tell you, I'm going to prepare you so you don't have to do it twice. I want you to say, that's a great list. All right, can you do it? Ready? One, two, three. Dude, I can't wait to hear that on, on uh, Facebook. Uh, it's really cool to go back and listen to that. Y'all are awesome. I'm going to play that for the first service. Y'all suck. Um, but I did, I did give y'all warning. So here's the thing. That is a great list. How do we live our lives day in and day out? We live like that list doesn't exist. We live like the giver of that list doesn't exist. So how do you think that makes Jesus feel? Not very good. See, we live in what has been called the meh generation, M-E-H, meh. Uh, how you doing in life, meh. Um, what are you excited about, meh. How you doing spiritually, meh. You gonna make a difference in the world, meh. Jesus addresses the meh generation in the book of Revelation. Jesus actually wrote three letters, or seven letters to seven different churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter three. And the one we're gonna look at today is Laodicea. And um, you need to understand, Laodicea was rich. It was on the trade routes. It was, it was one of the richest cities of, of ancient history. And they had been destroyed before this letter was written, before Jesus actually spoke these words and John in the book of Revelation wrote it down. Laodicea had been destroyed by an earthquake about 65 uh, AD. About 50 years before that, it had been destroyed again. Now, here's the crazy thing. They were so rich that when Rome said, we'll offer you money to rebuild because you're such an important city, they said, nah, we don't need your money. Twice in the first century, we don't need your money. We got this. We don't need money to rebuild. We're going to rebuild bigger and better because we're so rich. There were stadiums, theaters, lavish public baths, shopping malls. It was incredibly modern for its day. So if you can kind of picture this, picture maybe Dubai. You know how rich Dubai is? It was, it was rich. Now imagine if Dubai is destroyed and they go, hey, we don't need any money from the government. We got this. They actually do because of all, all the oil money, but we don't need your money. Or, or not, not as spectacular, Las Vegas. 
Las Vegas has lots of money. Can you imagine if they're destroyed by an earthquake and they say to the U.S. government, they would never say this, but they, would, they could say, we don't need your money. We're going to rebuild. We're that we have that much money. Now, in those days, not only did they have money, this was the number one tourist destination for people to go to, but they had a very significant problem. They had an inadequate water supply. So in those days, what did you do if you didn't have enough water? You'd build an aqueduct. Here's one that Herod built to Caesarea. We call it Caesarea. They called it Caesarea. Herod built this city, Herod built this city in a swamp just to, just to show he could do it. And then he had no water. So 17 miles away, he begins building this aqueduct and it, it runs and brings fresh water. That's pretty impressive. Now, if you're in Laodicea, what do you do? Well, you build these kind of aqueducts. They, they actually had pipes and, and they, they brought it from two different cities, two cities that had good water. One of them was Colossae. If you uh, know the, the New Testament, Colossians was the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. So that's not very far away. They were known for cold water, very cold spring water. And if you know anything about spring water, you know it's very refreshing. If you go to Haiti with us and, and you drink uh, lukewarm water all day, you know that's not very... Uh, refreshing. We get two times we have cold water or cold drinks in Haiti. It's at lunch when they bring us something with ice and at supper when they bring us something with ice. The rest of the time we carry these big five gallon water jugs around and we drink lukewarm water. If somebody forgets and leaves it in the sun, doesn't put it in the shade, you drink hot water and it's not very refreshing. The other place was Heropolis. Heropolis was known for their hot springs, which were medicinal. You know, if you've ever had uh, uh, some type of aches or pains and you sit in a hot tub, you understand what's going on. So they built these, these two aqueducts, one for cold water, one for hot water, and they piped them through the mountains and they got them to Laodicea. What temperature do you think the water was when it got to Laodicea? Was it still hot? No. Was it still cold? No, it was lukewarm. It was tepid. It was dirty. Jesus was the greatest communicator ever. And he says to these, this city, he speaks to them in a language they will understand. And he says, you're like the water that's coming into your city. Let's look at what he says in Revelation chapter three, beginning in verse 15. First thing he says is, I know your deeds. He's saying, I know what you did this week. I know how you lived this week. So the question for us is, do you know how you lived this week? Because Jesus knows. Do you know how passionate you were spiritually this last week? Because Jesus knows. Do you know how aware you were of the kingdom of God as it's all around you? Jesus said, my father is always at work. Do you know that God was at work this week? Because Jesus knows. Were you aware of it? Because Jesus knows whether you were aware of it or not. Did you even notice God this week or did you spend all of your time on you? Because Jesus knows how you spent your week. He said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Both serve a purpose but you're neither. So because you are lukewarm, like the water that reaches your city, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus was saying your spiritual lives have become stale. After all that great list, you said it was a great list. After that great list, you live like I'm, I don't even exist. Your life is stale. And, and Jesus' reaction to that, our indifference, the literal translation is, not I will spit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will blow chunks because it turns my stomach. First time I went to Piney Woods Baptist Encampment, you know, it's about an hour and a half from here, 1995, Caleb was a baby. I took the youth group down there and I was told, do not drink the water. Now it's actually better now. They've, they've done some water treatment, but it was hideous back then. Even when you took a shower, it was like, it was like rotten eggs. It was all that sulfur smell. Well, I forgot. First day I'm standing in line. I'm hot. It's 104 degrees. It's the middle of summer. And I walk by a water fountain and, and as it's like people were in slow motion going, no, don't drink the water. And I went, took as big and I went, 
Because it was disgusting. All right, Jesus is saying, not just spew it out of your mouth, much more violent than that. He said, it makes me sick to my stomach to the point that I'm gonna blow chunks. That's what spiritual indifference does to your heavenly father. Those are Jesus' words. So how are you doing spiritually? Eh. Jesus wants to undo that attitude. If being lethargic spiritually makes Jesus sick, then maybe we should figure out what caused it. And there's two causes I wanna look at today. There's lots of causes, but two that I think Jesus wants new life and anybody watching us on Facebook to understand. The first one is a cause of spiritual indifference is self-sufficiency. This is actually illusion, but you think you are enough to handle life. I'm good, I don't need Jesus, I don't need church, I don't need the Bible, because I'm good. I've got my life under control. If, if you're a parent and your kids have ever some, said something just totally ludicrous, I just have, to, sometimes my face involuntarily says what I'm thinking. When my kids say something, I'll go, are you serious? You know, the eyebrows go up. I think Jesus had one of those moments because look what they say. They say, I'm rich. Jesus is like, are you serious? You say, I'm rich. I've acquired, acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Look what he says. Here's why he says, are you serious? But you do not realize that you're wretched, poor, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says, in what matters most, you got stuff, but in what matters most, you are the poorest of the poor. You're a third world spiritual country. You're clueless. Hey, hey, Jesus loves you. Eh, I'm good. I don't need that. I got my car. I got a smartphone that has a one-year upgrade. Every year I get a new one. I'm so special. I got Netflix. I got a Snuggie and a bowl of Bluebell ice cream. I don't need anything else. Jesus says, wow. I beg to differ. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, You've, your life is full of stuff. It's empty of meaning. That stuff's not going to do you jack in the future when crisis hits because crisis is going to hit. What Jesus is saying is your stuff is not enough. He's saying that you are not enough. You will never be enough. You will never have enough to face the crises that are coming in your life. Someone just this last week said, I know God, they text me, I know God will never give us more than we can handle. And I'm like, are you kidding me? God always gives you more than you can handle. The Bible says you'll never, you'll never be tempted beyond what you can handle. But God always, read the Old Testament. They couldn't do any. Moses couldn't part the Red Sea. The Egyptians were behind him. God always gives you more than you can handle to see if you're going to depend on him. And as long as you continue to depend on yourself, you'll continue to fail. It's when you say, I can't do this. God says, now I got you where I want you. And now you'll see the glory of God. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes proud people. You are not enough. You will not be enough. You will never have enough to get through life. You are not self-sufficient. That's a lie from hell. Second thing, distractions of this world. Jesus told a parable about a farmer. He was going out to sow seed. He was planting seed and he wanted to get a crop. And he tells us that some of the seed fell on some soil and it began to take root. And then look what Jesus says in Mark 4, 19. But the worries of life, all of the stuff you've been worried about, the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things come in and choke the word. So the seed that's being planted is the word of God. You're being, the seed is being planted today. If you ever go to church or you watch online, the seed is being planted. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things comes in and chokes the word so that it is not fruitful in your life. 
Let me give you an example. How many of you at some point in your life, you were either at youth camp or you were at church or whatever, you, had, you felt like you were in the presence of God and you thought, I'm going to make changes. I want to be more like Christ. Let me see your hand. Anyone ever said, man, I want to be better than I am. I need God to make me better than I am. What happened? Life happened. You took a step towards Jesus and then all of a sudden the air conditioner quits running. All of a sudden, the car breaks down. All of a sudden, stuff happens. Your kid has to go to the hospital, or your kid goes to jail, and you have to do something about that, and life happens, and then, oh, well, I've got to get him to this soccer practice, and I've got to get him over here, because that's the most important thing in the world, and then there's bills to, play, to pay, and ah, the word, the seed is choked in your life. What happens then? Well, this was Christians in Laodicea. And so what happened was Christians then and Christians now, life is just unbearable. I'm going to get me a little bit of Jesus. Not enough Jesus to change anything, but enough Jesus so that I can feel like I'm going to heaven. And so that everybody around me will think I care about people more than I care about myself. Just, just enough Jesus. And the Bible says that makes Jesus vomit. Not only does it make him sick, there's another problem with that type of attitude. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus is speaking and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's why I played you this video. I know I've showed it several times, but it, it ties in. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at this, but only those, only the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. So head knowledge is not enough. The demons believe that Jesus is God and they're afraid and they're not gonna be in heaven. We act like God has no power. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? We did all these great things in your name. And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew who you were. Depart from me, you evildoers. Okay, so, so not only does, does spiritual indifference make Jesus vomit, second thing he says, spiritual indifference could, could get you or someone you love a ticket straight to hell. Jesus says that's unacceptable. Now, imagine... If you're in the city of Laodicea, you're known for riches. You're Christians. You've started a church. And Jesus writes a letter to you and says this to your church. How would that make you feel? Not very good. Well, what if Jesus wrote this letter to New Life Community Church? He did. Because we're filled with people who are lethargic spiritually. How does that make you feel? Not very good. Well, how do, how do we know what it is? How do we know if we have it, if we're infected? Well, six things. First, we live to impress people, not God. Am I popular? Do I blend in? Do you like my hair? Do you like my shoes? Do you like my music? Do you like where I'm going? Do you like my selfie? And now that we have emojis, do you heart my selfie? Because it's not enough to like my selfie. Do you love my selfie? We're obsessed with what people think. And we ignore what God thinks. And I want you to see what Paul tells a young pastor named Timothy about people. This is crazy to me. 2 Timothy 3, 2. People will be lovers of themselves. I, I started to highlight all of the things that he says about people, and then I realized it's every one of these things, so I didn't highlight them all. But, you know, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. That's, that's, a, that's not a good list. How does that list compare to Jesus' list? 
There is no comparison. So what? Why would you live for these people instead of God? Spiritual indifference, living for people, is the quickest way to get spiritual indifference and destroy your spiritual life. Paul says, have nothing to do with people that are slanderers, ungrateful, unholy. Second way we know if we have it, we live for earth and not heaven. We're obsessed with life on this earth. Almost every funeral I do, I say, people are surprised when someone in their family they love dies. Why is that? I think every one of us in here is going to die. The, 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 the statistics are remarkably consistent. So why are we so shocked when people die? It's because we're living for now. And we never consider what's going to happen on the other side. Look what John says, 2 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. You can't love God and the world at the same time. Third, how do we know if we got it? We rationalize sin and we don't fear God. We don't even call it sin anymore. It's a mistake. I just made a mistake. You can't be upset with me if I made a mistake. It wasn't a deliberate choice. I just made a mistake. Or we change the name to make it sound better. It's not, it's not adultery. It's an affair. It's not pornography. It's adult entertainment. And we dress it up so that we don't feel as bad about ourselves. And so that we can say, well, my mistake is not as bad as your sin. Sinner. We will call somebody else's sin, but not our own. We'll rationalize it. My, my sin, oh, my mistake is no big deal. Your sin, wow. How else do we know we have it? In Jesus, but not hell. Y'all have heard of Penn and Teller, the, the magicians. They're in Las Vegas. You know, Penn is the one that talks, and Teller is the one who doesn't talk. That's kind of their little hook, their little thing. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Penn Teller, Penn Gillette, is an atheist the one who speaks in that, in that duo. He's an atheist, and I want you to hear what he said. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? This comes from an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, but he says if you believe in God and you believe there's an afterlife and you believe there's a hell, you must hate people if you're not gonna tell someone about that. That comes from an atheist. See, here's what happens. We think, well, I'm in heaven, so who cares who goes to hell? As long as I'm okay, as long as my babies are okay, who cares? I've actually had two men in this church through the years, two men who, who wanted to be in leadership, who, who two men said to me, looked me in the eye different times and said, I don't care about lost people. And I went, oh, dear God, they cannot be in charge in our church. They're no longer in this church. Because I said, we're going to go after lost people because lost people matter. And, and I forgot to do this first service, just, just out of curiosity. I, I don't know how this is going to go. How many of you either came to Christ through the ministry of new life or you came back to Christ through the ministry of new life? Let me see your hands. Hang on, look around. That's over half this group. Don't you ever tell me that lost people don't matter. Number five, we only turn to God when we need him. He's just a tool in our toolbox. 
Oh God, my life is falling apart. Please help me. And as soon as he helps you, we put him back on the shelf. Be, be a good little God and stay out of my life till I need you again. Then something bad happens. Oh God, oh Lord, 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 help. Lord, where are you? Strong indicator that you're spiritually indifferent. Number six, we look just like the world, just like non-Christians. We watch the same movies, whether they're pleasing to God or full of filth. We listen to the same music. We spend our, t- our money the same stores, the same way. We raise our kids according to the same values. And when you do that, you wake up one day, you're not hot. You're not serving any spiritual purpose in someone else's life. You're not cold. You're not refreshing anyone. You're just indifferent. Meh. You want to go to church today? Meh. You want to use the gifts that God has given to his children to bless people? Meh. You want to be generous and let go of the things of this world so that you can bless someone in Haiti or someone around the world? Nah, I don't know. Nah. You want to lead someone to Christ? Nah, I don't care about lost people. That attitude doesn't just break Jesus' heart. It makes him sick to his stomach. Jesus would, in, I'm convinced, he would undo spiritual indifference. He's given us the greatest gift ever, which is life after death. Nah, that's nice. He's given us the greatest cause, his kingdom. Eh, yeah, that's nice. He's offered us the greatest power, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Mm. If I need it, I'll come running. But until then, stay on the shelf, Jesus. You see, um, spiritual indifference, it's, it's not like a common cold. It's not like a little allergy, you know, that makes you sneeze or makes your nose run. Spiritual indifference is septic. I didn't know what sepsis was until, how old's Elizabeth? How old's Elizabeth? 13. After Elizabeth was born, Mandy kept going to the hospital, to the emergency room, kept having issues, and we kept praying, and, and just, we, we didn't know what was going on, and so I'm with my family. We're, there are two families at, at Palestine High School. We're playing on the football field. We're walking. We're playing soccer. We're kicking footballs. We're just having a good time, and I get a phone call. I still remember where I was in the end zone, the far end zone, when I got the phone call, and they said, hey, man, um, Mandy's in the hospital. I'm like, yeah, I know, and they said, we don't think she's going to make it, and I went, What? And so I, Janie rode home with the other family, Janie and our kids, and I rushed to the hospital. And when I get to the ICU, I know the doctor who has just checked Mandy. I, I used to go to church with him. He walks out and I saw on his face death. And I went, dude, what's going on? He said, well, we're trying to stabilize Mandy so we can life flight her to Dallas to Baylor Medical Center. But we don't think she's going to make it. And I'm standing in the ICU going, dear God, what happened? And he said, she's septic. I said, what's septic? And he said, infection is so rampant in her body that her vital organs are beginning to shut down and it's just a matter of time until she dies. And I'm going, no way. By the grace of God, they get her stabilized. She flies to, they fly her to Dallas and, and the next day I went to see her. She had no idea. She's still in ICU. She's in a coma. And we're talking to her and, and we're praying over her. And, and I walked out of there and my heart was aching. Mandy was in my youth group. Ryan and Mandy were shortly after we started the church. They started attending and been here ever since. And I thought, Mandy's going to die from sepsis. 
Now, by the grace of God, within 24 hours, they got enough antibiotics in her body that it began to overcome the infection and her organs didn't shut down and she's here today. Now, I tell you this because spiritual indifference is septic to your spiritual life. When you get that meh attitude, it is just a matter of time until your heart becomes hard and it shuts down spiritually and you couldn't give a rip about people going to hell. So we got to do something about it. And, and what's the cure? Well, I could give you the Sunday school answers. And, and I bet everyone here knows them. Read your Bible, pray, worship, fellowship with other people. But I'm going to give you one thing that you need to do for the next seven days that I promise you, if you will do this, your spiritual life will, will do what Mandy's did. She actually had to be shocked back to life. Your spiritual life, if you'll do this, will begin to beat. Your heart will begin to beat again spiritually. Here it is. Every day for a week, do something that requires faith. Maybe you're supposed to stand up for somebody that nobody else stands up for. They make fun of, and if you stand up for them, you're going to be made fun of too. Maybe you're supposed to give someone a gift that really stretches you, and maybe you could sell it and use that money for something, but God says, I want you to give that to someone and be a blessing to them. Maybe you apologize to somebody that has wronged you, and you've held it against them. Maybe you forgive somebody that doesn't even ask for forgiveness. Maybe you volunteer to pray out loud at lunch today because you do not pray out loud. I'm just talking about you do something that requires you to depend on your heavenly father. Maybe God put someone on your heart who does not know Jesus and you're scared to death to let them know you know Jesus. All I'm talking about is something every day that requires you to have faith. And this is, this is why. Because Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible possible to please God. And then when you read in James, that's the, the half brother of Jesus. He says, faith without works is dead, not sort of dead, all the way dead. But when you begin to exercise faith, you come alive. When you begin to exercise faith, no longer are you consumed with what the world thinks. You're consumed with what God thinks. No longer are you rationalizing your sins. You're confessing your sins. No longer um, are, are you running after the things of the world. You're running after the things of God. And when you confess your sins, the Bible says his spirit purifies us from all sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then one day you wake up and you're different. You're not conformed to the people of this world. You've been transformed through God's Holy Spirit. Now, quite honestly, it's easier not to care. It's easier just to be spiritually indifferent, but that makes your heavenly father sick. So I would rather, I would rather have a cause. I, it's better to hurt with purpose than it is to exist without one. So here's what I want us to do. Jesus would undo spiritual indifference. And so a step towards getting out of spiritual indifference is to pray a prayer. And so I'm going to put this prayer up here. Go ahead and put it up there. So I'm just going to ask you just quietly where you are, speak it out loud. There's something powerful about speaking a prayer to God. Um, but when you get to the Father stir us up, I want everybody to stop because we're going we're to say that together. But just at your own pace, I'm not going to lead you. This won't be responsive reading. I want you just to pray this out loud to God. Go. Okay. Now I want everybody to say this. Yeah, not yet. Father, stir us up. Last week we were at Cameron's church in, in Austin and Cameron preached a whole sermon on stirring 
something up. And he said, we're really good at stirring up controversy, gossip, junk. But he said, we need to stir up the spirit of God within us. And I went, yes. So we're going to pray this like we mean it. We're going to let Satan hear it. We're going to say, Father, stir us up. Ready? Now, let's pray the rest of it together. Ignite a spiritual fire within the hearts of everyone in our church family. God, may we never be guilty of half-hearted worship, apathetic ministry, or spiritual indifference. Instead, God, may we be overflowing with a passion for the things that matter to you. How I pray those are not empty words in your life.